Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am super excited because I'm talking about afternoon tea, but that is not why we're here. Alex, no. what have we got on today? Forget the cake for now. You can't have the cake till August anyway. So we're going to amuse ourselves by talking to an assistant professor of military history for the U.S. Army who's based at Fort Leavenworth, Craig Bruce Smith. Um, he also wrote American Honor, the creation of the nation's ideals during the revolutionary era. And he's here today to school us, Alina, on the founding fathers. So this is stuff that American kids learn when they're like tiny and we only learn by watching musicals and stuff so he's going to sort us out aren't you great perfect well that's that's the plan or i'm fine just talking about afternoon tea also yeah so i just have to lead off and say that uh all views are my own and do not represent anyone but myself so oh, I've got my is disclaimer this, out. this is a sticky subject isn't it don't worry we just full-on headbutted this in the face and did a churchill show after all the statue stuff started and everything so yeah we're going to talk about these men and their contribution to american history um i guess so what we'll do is you can tell us about each one and who they were and then we'll talk about sure. what they did but so let's start with the most obvious one which is george washington so sure. who was he and where did he come from He's um, precocious as hell, isn't he? Doesn't he not write a book at like the age of 10? Well, he writes, he writes down uh, something that comes to be known as his rules of civility. He's probably somewhere around 12. It gets, it's sold in gift shops all throughout the U.S., any historical site, even if it has no connection with Washington. It's basically <laughs> like a how-to uh, sort of etiquette guide. But the thing is, he doesn't actually author it. It's probably... He copies it down. He definitely copies it from other sources, but it could be something as simple as it's a handwriting exercise. He's just learning ah, better penmanship. So that makes over- me dislike him less because I'd always thought, oh, what an overachiever. He actually has a really basic schooling, um, probably local schoolhouse, you know, maybe a tutor, but he really wanted that English education that, he, that when his father dies when he's 11, he just doesn't have the money to get. So he's mm. always striving. He always feels lesser than, than the, his, his older half-brothers. I feel sorry for him. He turns out okay. Yeah, in the end, he's, he's okay. Yeah. So what does he do? How does he get from sort of semi-okay schooling to being a founding father? Sure. What's, uh, what's, what's really interesting is, um, so his father dies early. He, he's, his mother is, is a very big influence on him, oftentimes... Uh, uh, he sort of just becomes resentful of his mother. So whatever she says, he does the opposite. And his older half-brother, Lawrence Washington, becomes a really sort of pseudo-father. And his older half-brother brother marries really well. 
and he marries into the Fairfax family, who are titled English aristocrats in Virginia. Is this and Thomas he, Fairfax's family? Yes, exactly uh. right. So he marries in, um, and uh, through that, Washington gets introduced to sort of aristocratic British culture, and he his status is raised immeasurably, and he makes his way because of these connections. Um, and his first job is as a surveyor for Fairfax lands. And then after his brother dies, he inherits his brother's former position as adjunct general of the Virginia militia uh, at the rank of major, basically because his brother had the post. And he gets this position because of his connection with the Fairfaxes and their connection with the Virginia lieutenant governor, Robert Dinwiddie. And this is how he makes his way into military society. And he's at the very start. Some people even, it's even been asserted, he may have literally fired the first shot of the French and Indian War. Ah, so how, where did his family come from originally? Are they English? They are. You could still uh, visit the family estate in England, Soulgrave Manor today. Ah. Um, so there is, a, there is an English ancestry, and which actually becomes very interesting after the fact, much later, um, into sort of the think World War One, World War Two period, there are English biographies that come out of Washington, and they stress that he must be a true-born Englishman because only an Englishman could defeat England in a war. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like some kind of crap an English historian would have written at the time. Um, so how? So then, obviously, the revolution happens. How, how does he play into this, and what's his role? How does he become a founding father? So he he has a really sort of winding path, loyal British subject during the, the French and Indian War, but he starts to feel resented that the Americans are treated as lesser by their British counterparts. He has lots of fighting over rank. Uh, one of the big things is, does a continental officer uh, of a higher rank outrank a British officer of a lower rank? And this is this really point of, of contention. Um, he starts to move towards patriotism in reaction to British legislation, such as the, the Stamp Act, um, which there previously hadn't been direct taxation on Americans. Um, mm. uh, it had been at the local level. And this is many colonists, or I should say almost every colonist is resentful of this. And they start to view themselves as behaving differently from the English, the English as abusing the, the limits of government as not having Americans directly represented. Um, the British in turn say you're virtually represented because you're part of the British empire. And he comes uh, slowly. Uh, he's very resistant to sort of the more violent aspects of revolution, sort of like the rioting, uh, Boston Tea Party, things like that. But by 1774, he's a member of the First Continental Congress and he is very much pledging resistance politically to um, to the British. And by 1775, he's named commander in chief of the new continental army, uh, partly because he's really tall and he wears his military uniform to the continental Congress. So it's hard to overlook him. That's one way to do it. Just go dressed up as the commander and then they'll pick you. Dress for the job you want. Alex, remember, dress for the job you want. So what, if I go and buy a space suit, 
they will let me be an astronaut, is that? <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> if he dresses a police officer, they'll pick you to be a police officer, no? I don't think so. Anyway, 1776 is the big year, isn't it? And I know, I'm going to just level with you now. If I have any knowledge about anything we talk about today, it's coming from the musical or it's coming from National Treasure. So there's a document in 1776, isn't there? There is. And before it was stolen by Benjamin Gates... It Damn was Nicolas Cage, he's so ill-behaved. <laughs> They're making a National Treasure 3, supposedly. Joy. That, that's been on the cards for about 11 years, though. I don't care, I want it. Yeah. <laughs> I've not watched any of them, I'm really You should, sorry. they're ridiculous, but fun. But they're, yeah, they're, the, go on. They're funny. The second one, they, they break into Buckingham Palace, because why not? Yeah, why wouldn't you just go and batter the Queen's desk and steal something <laughs> from it? But anyway, the document is real. Yes, the Declaration of Independence is signed in 1776, formally declaring uh, American independence from Britain. Obviously, Britain doesn't recognize that until 1783. Um, It's very much a document that lays out uh, foundations of of rights, of liberty, of freedom, of abuses by the, uh, the British government. Um, the king, and but also parliament. And it's very much uh, an international document. Uh, it's one designed to signal to the world that America is independent and try to solicit other nations to aid them, whether it's France, Spain, the Dutch, um, because other nations would be really hesitant to get involved in what would have just been a British colonial uh, squabble. They wanted to make it clear that this was something different. But the most interesting part at the end is it's a literal pledge and they pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And it's very much, uh, oftentimes the declaration is, is, is looked as, as just being rhetorical, but this is something they deeply believed in, and they viewed it as a statement very much of moral purpose as well as a, a political document. And the chief architect of the words is, is Thomas Jefferson, but many are involved in this, including other famous uh, founders like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. George Washington does not sign the Declaration of Independence Ah. because he is off fighting uh, with the Continental Army. So he receives word of the Declaration while he's in New York City uh, awaiting uh, fighting the British. And it's this he actually has the Declaration read to uh, the Continental Army right prior to what become the Battle of Long Island or Battle of Brooklyn, not to be confused with the Battle of New York, which is in the Avengers. This is true. As far as George Washington is concerned, then, after 1783, what does he continue to do um, as like a father of this young nation? Yeah, I actually think his contributions at the end of the war are perhaps more important than his contributions in any other facet. And I like to single out one moment, and it's in 1783 where Washington resigns his commission as commander-in-chief back to the Continental Congress. And in doing that, he affirms civilian supremacy over the military. Uh, This would not be like was a traditional English fear of a military commander taking over sort of Oliver Cromwell style or uh, Julius Caesar style, you know, every good Anglo-American. Both lovely guys. (laughs) Um, So... It's reestablishing civilian supremacy that the army represents the people and military commanders, regardless of how successful, how powerful, bend to civilian authority. So uh, a good contemporary comparison, look at Napoleon, what happens in the French Revolution. He does not 
relinquish power. And there's literally a, a Napoleon line where he, he's sort of reminiscing and lamenting, they wanted me to be George Washington. And, and obviously he, he couldn't. Um, so I think- He's not Washington- tall enough for a start. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wouldn't fit the uniform, that's for sure. No. But it's that, I think that's this, this crucial moment. It's, it's really set a precedent for American uh, society and also an example for, for other nations to the world, what they should be aspiring to. Is he the most important of them? It's tough to say, uh, depending on how you depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, obviously, there are others that are more central to actually crafting the the ideas. Mm. Um, I think he's perhaps the most important in implementing them and setting some sort of tangible example um, that we still see. You know, two terms for the president. Um, uh, you know, certain norms of behavior. Uh, that's very much Washington. Um, though he may not have actually been the sort of uh, one of the real intellectual um, founders in the same way as a Franklin and Adams or a Jefferson. Is he the first POTUS? Yes, he is the first president of the United States. And so pretty much anything he does be- becomes um, like doctrine uh, for, mm. for long periods of time until it's reinterpreted. So we don't get another two term president until FDR. Uh, oh, and then wow. it's, promptly changed right after that because Republicans are concerned that a Democrat's been in power for too long. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. Um, Alina, let's pick another one. Let's try a different founding father. I'm enjoying this. I'm not very good at this, so please bear with me. So Benjamin Franklin, who I do know who he was, he's quite annoying. <laughs> he's just one of those people that's good and amazing at everything, isn't he? He, he is. He's self-taught, which makes him more insufferable. If, 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 um. <laughs> so he, uh, he basically has a formal education, like basically no further than, you know, grade school education. But yeah, his brother was a printer. He apprenticed. He basically runs away partially from, from his brother, partially for saying some not very pro-Puritan things in Boston, ends up in Philadelphia and sort of rises to become a famed printer, uh, inventor, author, um, uh, diplomat, uh, statesman. At one point, he's probably one of the one of, if not the most famous people in the world. This is after his famous, you know, lightning experimentations. And he does briefly live in London. And you can visit the Benjamin Franklin House even today. And he's the guy that has the glasses in National Treasure. Yes, he invents apparently everything. Yes. So. How does he get so? How does he then focus, and or bring all of this to a focus and use it to to help America? Sure, he's he's an interesting f- figure in that he represents a very much uh, something different from the the British imperial system. He's very much you see social mobility from him. He's not well educated, but he rises to these these high positions largely because of his writing, publishing um, almanacs, basically, you know, Poor Richard's Almanac, which is basically an early encyclopedia. Uh, he becomes uh, basically an agent for the American colonies. So speaking on behalf of the colonies um, in uh, England during the um, resistance to British taxation during the sort of 1760s. And he gets himself into trouble. Uh, and this is what largely puts him on the path to, to patriotism. He's very much 
favor of the British Empire. He has made his way in the world more than, than, than anyone could ever hope of. Uh, so he's trying to bring about reconciliation between the British colonies and Britain. And he does this by publishing private letters of the British, uh, excuse me, of the Massachusetts uh, governor and lieutenant governor, who's Thomas Hutchinson and Andrew Oliver. Uh, and he, he, has, he has them sent to uh, politicians in Massachusetts, largely Samuel Adams and John Adams. And he tells them, distribute this, don't publish it. They, of course, publish it. And they're letters that are taken out of context to make it look like it's Hutchinson alone who is orchestrating all of this. And basically what happens, it comes out uh, after duels are fought and threatened that Franklin has leaked these, these uh, private personal letters and he's brought before a, a, a council meeting and he's basically torn apart publicly and he loses any way forward uh, in the British Empire. And he, he is sort of shocked and he says, you have publicly dishonored me. Uh -huh. uh, and he really takes it personally from that moment. He does. So what does he do after that? So, <laughs> so after that, he, he becomes a leading figure in the Continental Congress. So uh, early American government. He's one of those on the committee for the Declaration of Independence. So it's his, his ideas are very much in the Declaration of Independence. But his major contribution after that is he becomes a diplomat to France because he spoke French and he was known throughout the world. And he is the key figure that is going to help bring the French army and more importantly, the French Navy into the American Revolution, which is going to be essential for the American uh, Continental Army to actually defeat the British Empire because the Americans had no Navy to speak of and the British had the, the greatest Navy on earth. Boom. Hell yeah, we did. Um, so he does, he is a signatory, isn't he? But what does he do after independence? After independence, he is crucial in the foundations of the U.S. Constitution, the federal constitution. There's actually two, America's had two constitutions. The first one was the Articles of Confederation, uh, which is brought forth during the revolution, but not actually signed off until much later. And it's a, it's a really weak govern, government that gives more power to the states and the federal government. And Franklin's one of the figures that helps to establish a very much nationally uh, national power, uh, the same constitution that remains in America. Uh, and in his later life, uh, he also becomes a leading figure in abolitionism uh, in mm -hmm. the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. But his big claim to fame in his later years is he writes his autobiography, which becomes a sensation, a bestseller. And he gives his sort of uh, words of wisdom uh, to future generations, and it becomes a sort of how-to guide. And he lists things from, uh, he comes up with his 13 names of virtue and uh, describes how to keep spreadsheets of practicing your individual virtues each day to become a better person. Um, but he gives really loose interpretations of these. So for instance, he has chastity as a, as a virtue, but his definition of chastity allows for premarital sex and affairs so long as no one finds out. Oh, that's cool, because he was starting to sound like a prig there. He, he is well, uh, he is internationally known as a ladies' man. <laughs> Do you know what? This is the guy with the $100 bill, right? He does not this look like This is the guy in the $100 bill. Um, 
and he must he obviously the size of his brain was irresistible to women because god love him it was not his face was it right this one this one i think i know more about than any of the others and it's thomas jefferson he what? is he the most complicated figure out of the whole lot it's he's certainly the most hypocritical um, yeah because he he's he wrote the words uh all men are created equal yet he was a slaveholder uh he's gonna write uh later uh in, in the 1780s in his notes on the states of virginia that that if god is just uh, i'm paraphrasing a bit that the slaves will rise up and, and take their freedom and it would be deserved uh but he keeps his slaves for his entire life and he has um uh, relations with Sally Hemings, and he has slave ch- children who he does he keeps enslaved. Yeah. Um, as comparison to Washington, who uh, later in life becomes resistant to slavery, and though he keeps them for his life, he does in fact free his slaves in his will, which would be upon his death of his wife Martha. Jefferson makes no such uh, attempt, despite vocally declaring himself opposed to slavery. Um, I know nothing about his background. Where does he come from and how does he rise okay, to he's, prominence? He's from Virginia, um, yeah. from the, the sort of western section of This is Monticello, uh, isn't it? That's where he founds his house, right by okay. today's University of Virginia. But he's, he's from the uh, – his mother was a Randolph, which is a really prominent elite Virginia family. But his father wasn't, so he sort of grows up. Um, that he's from this prominent family, but he doesn't bear the name. So he's trying to prove himself in many ways as heir to this name, but without their help. So he sort of distance, tries to distance himself from, from his cousins to prove himself on his own. Um, he starts off as a lawyer, and um, he has uh, schooling at the College of William and Mary, and... He becomes a lawyer, and then he's basically becomes a really prominent statesman through his writing. He's one of the best writers of that generation, and that's what really tracks the attention of others. And he briefly serves as the uh, governor of Virginia. He's going to help write the Virginia Constitution. He's going to found the University of Virginia. He's also going to serve as a diplomat to France uh, in the 1780s, and he's going to be crucial in uh, the early stages of the French Revolution. Uh, assisting with the uh, the writing of the Declaration uh, of the Rights of Man, which is very much based on his own Declaration of Independence. And he's going to serve in the first cabinet and then later on become uh, president, where his probably most uh, monumental achievement is a land deal buying uh, Louisiana Purchase, which doubles, more than doubles the size of the United States. That's insane. Um so as far as he's concerned, he's the one that writes the Declaration of Independence. Is that right? I, I know yeah, that he formally writes. Yeah, he writes the words. Obviously, there are amendments and edits, but he mm. writes it. But the most famous section that's left out is he has a his original draft has a section um, blaming slavery on the king of England and saying Americans have simply inherited the truth. <laughs> um, that part gets taken out largely because of uh, they want unanimity for the declaration and the Southern colonies slash states will not sign it with that section. In there. Yeah. 
And so what does, does he play an active role in the revolution then? Or is, is he very much the statesman? He's not like George Washington. He doesn't go. No, he is very much the statesman. Mm. So he um, is going to play a role in the Continental Congress and then in, gover- as, as in the government of Virginia and crafting legislation. Uh, so he does not take up arms. Um, and as, so that it, it's a very different, uh, with all these individuals, get, you get different feels and different focuses. So he's very much statesman, diplomat, president. And he's the third president, isn't he? He is. The second president is less well known, isn't he? But he's um, a man of really strong convictions, and that's John Adams. Yes. So John Adams is, is uh, he's, pro- he's probably the, the least well known of the four. And he's sort of been rehabilitated a bit because David McCullough wrote his John Adams biography and then HBO did a miniseries. Yeah. So he's better known now than he was, let's say, even in the 1990s. Um, but he uh, is, a Bo- is a Boston area lawyer, goes to Harvard. Uh, his big claim to fame uh, before the Revolutionary War, he defends the British soul. Uh, uh, soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial, which is where British soldiers fire on a crowd of colonists who are attacking them with clubs and ice balls and threatening to kill them. And Adams believes that uh, though he's opposed to to uh, British military occupation, he defends them on murder charges because he believes they deserve a fair trial. And he believes that Americans need to prove that they are holding to the law, even when, when Britain is not. And that's how he makes his, that's how he really makes his name. Uh, he's also a prolific author, uh, essential again in the continental Congress. Uh, one of the, one of the men on the continent on the declaration of independence committee. He's also going to serve as a diplomat uh, to France First, uh, the problem is he doesn't speak any languages other than English, and he constantly fights with Franklin, and he's constantly complaining back to America that all Franklin does is employ scribblers to trumpet his own fame, and that <laughs> Franklin should be fired. So what do they do? They tell John Adams it's time to leave France, and he's sent to the Netherlands, where he's instrumental in uh, acquiring uh, financial backing from the Dutch for the revolution. Uh, he's later going to serve as uh, ambassador to, to England, and he is going to speak to King George III in 1785. Uh, you may remember that one line in the Hamilton musical. Um, and he then is going to become the first vice president of the United States, where he is going to attempt to uh, change the name of the the presidency. So Mr. President is what becomes, but he imposed, he suggested all manner of titles, include his democratic majesty, his Republic was it the Republican American mightiness. Um, <laughs> I like that one, but I know, I think the current incumbent would have preferred that one. So anyway, Adam, yeah. <laughs> I offer no comment on modern politics. No comment. Let's move um, on. Uh, he, he actually is accused of being a monarchist because he's very much identifies with the British system. Uh, he's also um, overweight, so he picks up the nickname his rotundity, uh, mocking these pretensions. Oh, that's mean. 
Well, politicians were mean then too. Yeah, politicians are just mean. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I ask one thing I didn't ask you? So Franklin is never a president, is he? He is never a president. Why is that? Does he try? Um, he, does, he does not attempt it. Uh, he dies uh, very, right during Washington's first term. Um, so even if he had potentially attempted it, no one would have beaten Washington at first. It, and Franklin actually, in crafting the Constitution, in granting extensive executive powers, um, is really is really shaping this with Washington in mind. And he trusts Washington. And the idea is, well, if we get Washington in, he will make this work. And he believes that's really Washington is the man to do this. And he certainly does not uh, attempt um, to, to challenge Washington in this respect. And, and he's dead um, shortly thereafter. So in the uh, after um, independence, what's John Adams's continuing contribution? Again, um, vice president, which is really a position that during that period that you don't have to do much except break ties in, in the Senate. Um, he is a leading political figure. And what you start to see is partisanship. Um, so you have the rise of political parties. Uh, first, uh, anti-federalists who become democratic Republicans and federalists. And John Adams is one of the major leaders of the federalist party. Um, and they're in favor of strong central government, uh, very, very much for uh, financially sound government, whereas the Democratic Republicans are more in favor of uh, looser confi uh, configuration, more states' power, uh, state power. They, they view it as America as a rising agrarian utopia. So the Democratic Republicans are more in line with Thomas Jefferson, the Federalists more in line with, with men like uh, Adams and, and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, so Adams becomes president after Washington. Washington decides to only have two terms and Adams becomes a successor. And he has a really uh, tumultuous presidency, which is basically highlighted by uh, something known as the Quasi-War with France, which is an undeclared naval war. 
Now, John Adams is nowhere near a military figure, and he gets nowhere near fighting. But during this quasi-war, he actually wears a military uniform and a sword. Um, You've got it, though, haven't you? Once. If you have a sword, you should absolutely wear it. Yeah. Whereas um, his most controversial, the most controversial thing about his presidency is the passage of something called the Alien Sedition Acts, which... Uh, for many people challenge freedom of speech and it would acts against either citizens for speaking falsely against the government or, um, or aliens for speaking out against the government. And it was, it could be imprisonment, deportation, and many viewed this as really an early challenge to the U S constitution. And he's the first president and one of the few presidents to only have one term in office. Uh... So that's you. That's is that the four founding fathers? If you are going to list the main four, that's them, isn't it? But we've got some others to talk about. I would say those are the big four, and Mm. and I love to use the term founders because I think of it as the whole generation. It's not just you know the old white men. Women are involved, African Americans involved, lower classes. But if you're thinking the traditional founders, they are certainly the big four. But there are many others that make contributions in, in, in different ways. Uh, happy to talk about it. anyone you want to talk about. One of them has a musical. Yes, <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> Tell us about the real man behind Hamilton. Okay, so again, Hamilton um, is certainly a leading figure, um, but he wasn't very, you know, it's not to say that he was unknown and certainly known to historians, but the Hamilton musical really has brought him forward to where he's he's probably... You know, if you're looking for, you know, there's a big four, maybe that he's part of the Fab Five. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's born in the Caribbean on the island of Nevis. Uh, uh, he basically grows up an orphan. His father is the lesser son of a, of a Scottish peer. Uh, he ultimately comes to America to be educated, going to King's College, present-day Columbia University. And, and this is where he basically becomes a patriot. He's really looking for a way to make his way in the world, and the American Revolution provides an opportunity. And where he gets his big break is serving as an aide for George Washington. And Washington basically becomes his uh, major supporter throughout the rest of his career. And it's through Washington that Hamilton is really elevated. So the musical, overall, I think the musical is great. And I think it gives you a good understanding of him. But it, it does, uh, it's loose with the facts at places. It glorifies things. It leaves out other aspects. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a fun show. And you could, you could watch it and gain some insight into Hamilton and certainly an interest. So uh, I think Hamilton, the musical is great because it mm. brought such interest to the American Revolution and I think American history more broadly. Absolutely. And, and everyone went loopy when they televised it over here last week or the week before. Um, but also as well, you have James Madison. He's the fourth president, isn't he? Where Benjamin uh, Franklin doesn't take well, a yeah, there's, the, there's no There's no Franklin. So he, he comes right after Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. And his, James Madison's major claim to fame is as the father of the, the U.S. Constitution. And the Constitutional Convention was actually done largely in secret um, because there was a fear that the uh, representatives, the delegates, 
uh, if they had to report back to their home states or the press was allowed, they wouldn't be able to openly and freely debate things. And it would just become about posturing mm. um, and playing to the press. So it's largely kept under, uh, under sort of lock and key. There's, you know, the shutters are drawn. There's, there's even an account, I, I won't vouch for the validity of this, that George Washington had uh, Benjamin Franklin followed because Franklin would talk to anyone about anything. So they were afraid <laughs> of him blabbing when he was down in the pub after the sessions. Oh, was he a bit pompous? Oh, Franklin? Yeah. Um, he knew at one, he, he believed himself to be one, the most famous man in the world. So I leave yeah. that to your discretion. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I just try to think what a party would be like with all six of these guys there. Well, well, here's the thing. Franklin in France was the life of the party at Versailles. And mm. he became, I, I kid you not, a sex symbol in Paris. I just, I do not see it. He literally started fashion trends. He he dressed. He actually dressed only in a plain brown suit because he wanted to act like he was a common American. Uh, he wore a fur hat virtually the entire time he was in. in picture like the the raccoon skin hat with it. With yeah, the yeah. He's just um, pretending to be a yokel, basically. But it caught on, and so you have the ladies in Paris with their big Marie Antoinette hair and fur hats, and. <laughs> He became so famous that he was actually taking attention away from the king, who was uh, Louis XVI. So Louis XVI actually commissioned chamber pots with Franklin's face on the bottom. Oh, my God. This is like, uh, it's the Ed Sheeran effect. Women <laughs> screaming at Ed Sheeran, and you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand. It's the same uh, maybe, with Benjamin Franklin. Ed Sheeran could play a young Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> yeah, if he wants to branch out. I just, I love it. I love it. He's a, he's a sex symbol because he's just not. <laughs> but yeah, it's brilliant. But Madison, we constantly. Oh, so, yeah, Madison, he's so. Most of what we know about what goes on in the Constitutional Convention comes from Madison because he actually takes notes. So uh, he's a historian's dream because we actually know what went on because of him. Um, and he becomes president. And he is president during the War of 1812, where the Americans must defend themselves against the British again, um, in what becomes known as the Second War of Independence. So the mm. War of 1812, the war that no one wants to fight, um, the war that uh, no one really wins, but the Native Americans certainly lose. Yeah. Um, and it's basically, it's a side, it's a side show for the British during the Napoleonic Wars that they just want to get out of because they want to, they're worried about Napoleon. They're not worried about James Madison. Um, but Madison is able to claim victory in the war of 1812 by largely not losing despite the uh, presidential mansion uh, being burned and then repainted, hence the white house. Um, so he, again, he's president for this war that reaffirms American independence and shows that America... He's the one where uh, the Redcoats eat his dinner. Yes, yes. So, oh, I know uh, the one we're talking about now. So, yes, he actually escapes when the British come to burn Washington, D.C., and his mm -hmm. wife, uh, is, perhaps is more famous than, than he is, Dolly Madison. She actually got an ice cream named after her. Um, she is one of the great hostesses of the D.C., uh, era and she is famous so the british are coming to burn the the white house she has time to only save one portrait she saves george washington not james madison <laughs> i love it 
That's a problem. The reason, Duke. the reason though, he's he's dead at that point. All the other presidents are still alive, so the portraits could be repainted. But, That's true. Yeah. But you could imagine poor James Madison getting this explanation from his wife. No, I'm 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 with her on that. She said, "For the good of America, darling." That's what she's saying to him. Yeah, to him, darling. I did it for the good of America. We can't paint his face again because he's dead. <laughs> I'm with her. It's a, it's a really solid point, and and quite profound that she managed to think of that in an emergency situation as well. I wouldn't be that quick. You you wouldn't take any portrait with you. No, I take the cake. <laughs> you t- take the dinner i love it at least you're honest uh we've do you know what we we have done this in a light-hearted way but we've been talking about some figures haven't we and they are like intellectual i mean intellectually you're looking at some giants aren't you of american history the giants yeah certainly these these are figures that have established the ideals of what america uh is and aspires to be um and it's oftentimes, you know, it's easy to sort of heroicize these guys and act as if they have no flaws. These, these are immensely flawed people, personally, professionally. Um, but what I think is important to remember is they deeply believed in the revolutionary ideals of liberty and freedom uh, and equality. And they, they tried to achieve that in a way um, uh, that, in, that, that they set the precedent for it. They set the foundations for it. And I think it's, it, their ideas are still relevant, um, even though they may in some ways seem very antiquated. They, I, I think it's, it's monumental. They built a government that's, that's, that's lasted. They've had one constitution um, since 1787. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, at the, look, at the, look at the French governments after the revolution. Um, I, I think that's something really to be proud of. Absolutely. So is that for you, are those six, are they the founding fathers? I, I think it's wider than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't, I, I really look at it as a generation. It's those people that come of age from like, you know, the, the 1750s through like, uh, you know, the 1790s. I think it's a lot of people. I think it's more than just individuals, mm-hmm. but I think there are some people that, that had, certainly more influence than others. And I, and I think if you're looking for influence, it, it's probably those six have some of the, the most lasting. Who for you is the unsung founding father that everyone should know more about? I would say Nathaniel Green, um, who was a general in the Continental Army. He's a, a key commander, uh, particularly in the Southern campaigns. Um, but he doesn't take on the sort of prominent role post-revolution. He dies uh, fairly early. Um, so I think he's really a crucial figure for bringing about uh, the preservation of the, the establishment of the country. And he's very concerned about the manner in which wars are fought. He really is trying to fight by a rules of war and an ethical war, an honorable war. That's why I think he's really an, an unsung a uh, member of his founding generation. You need to do a book on him as well. I've got a lot on the list and my <laughs> wife yells at me as is. <laughs> your wife now hates us. We're really sorry. Maybe one day, maybe one day. Which is your favorite personally? Oh, uh, personally, it's it's Washington all the way. Yeah. Um, no Washington? question. I, I just think he is, the fact that 
after the war, he had such immense popularity, such immense power. Um, this is someone that could have established in, you know, an American monarchy. He could have done a Cromwell, were. couldn't he? And he just could like, have. crowned himself he could have. king. And the people would have cheered. You know, mm. Cromwell went, oh, Lord Protector, I'm not a king. But, you know, he makes up a title. Uh, John Adams would probably help him out. Um, <laughs> but he could become, he could have become like a Cromwell. He could have. But he doesn't. And he's the first person since the, the classical era to give up power. And it's something that was unheard of. And one of my favorite stories about this, and it's also the subject of my next book, um, is so American painter Benjamin West is in London and he's painting a portrait of George III. Mm-hmm. And George III can't conceive of Washington giving up power. He just he can't imagine it. And he believes that Washington is going to crown himself. And he thinks very much, yes, and so the Americans will soon tire of their new King George and return to the old. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. And then he goes and mad and the joke's on him. Exactly. So, but Benjamin mm. West actually turns to him and says, uh, no, your majesty, Washington's actually going to surrender power. And, and George III is shocked. Maybe and that's what turns, sent him over the edge. I, I think he was showing signs earlier if their historical <laughs> accounts are, are, are believed, but may, maybe. Um, and he actually turns to and he says, then if he does that, he shall be the greatest man in the world. So a recognition from George III that giving up power is this monumental thing. It becomes this global symbol. And that's, that's my next book. On. It's on uh, global views of George Washington. That sounds really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us, I feel like I've got a foothold now. They're not just, I've been to Mount Rushmore and I've spent plenty of dollars um, in America and they're not just the guys on the money or the mountain now. I actually feel like I know the difference and not just because of national treasure. Because if I'm honest, Jefferson and Washington were kind of mashed together as one person in my head. (laughs) I know they weren't, but if you don't, I'd... Probably, if you'd shown me an unnamed portrait of one of them, I, sh- I would have struggled to see which one was which. Well, yeah, well, I feel go, like I know the difference. Go visit Sulgrave Manor in the Benjamin Franklin House. You've, and there's actually, there's statue, there is a statue of George Washington in London. Ah, well, I don't, it might not be there now after the last <laughs> few weeks. <laughs> At well, last sighting there was. Well, I hope he's still there. And so you can go, you can go see him without leaving home. Have you been to Rapid City, South Dakota? I have not. I have, because it's President City. They have a statue of every single president. They're on the block corners. It's brilliant. I mean, we were there when they unveiled Obama. So they literally go all the way up to date. So um, they're just on the street corners. There's a, all the presidents. So it's the city of presidents, basically. They're slightly obsessed, but it's brilliant. They're, they're great. They're really good statues. And Abraham Lincoln's sitting with his son and he's holding the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, I think naturally Jefferson's doing something with the Declaration of Independence. Oh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, the statue of him, they have um, put the town's Vietnam Roll of Honor on the statue, which is kind of ironic. Uh, the Teddy Roosevelt one's a bit creepy. It's kind of leaning at a funny angle, if I'm honest. I'll put some photos on Twitter because I took pictures. I went around and saw my favourites and then I went around and booed at Woodrow Wilson as well. But uh, yeah, they have all of them. It's great. Still mad about the League of Nations? 
No, just uh, I, it's a more personal thing because I wrote a book on George V. He was really rude and obnoxious, and so was his wife when they came to Buckingham Palace. And uh, he basically, so George V had had four Christmases of war, and the first year he could go and be with his family, uh, Wilson decided to descend on London without giving anybody any choice. And he got up and made a speech at Buckingham Palace that thanked all of the Allies for the war, and he forgot to mention Britain. Well. So that went down well. Is your favourite president in there? Who is your favourite president? Uh, it's Washington. I'm, I'm, it is still I am Washington. Completely unabashedly, uh, you know, I, I, I think Washington did some pretty amazing things. Um, you know, so if you're going, you know, everyone likes doing those those presidential rankings. You know, it, it's for me, it's Washington one, Lincoln two, and then after that, there's I think there's a big drop off. Because Lincoln's on Mount Rushmore, isn't he? Is is it Lincoln, yeah, it Washington, Lincoln, yep. Jefferson? And Teddy. Uh, why Teddy? Because he, he's uh, the one that founds the national park system. Yes, he was. He'll always be Robin Williams in Night at the Museum. I didn't know any of that. I knew no. nothing. Zero. Like Alex knew more by watching films. I knew like zero. Join us tomorrow when Zach White and Marcus Cribb, our little Napoleonic boffins, are in town to talk all about the cult of Napoleon. They basically get really irritated by Napoleonic hero worshippers who ignore the fact that he was a bit of a scumbag in certain areas. So they've come and they've done a biography of him. It's epic. It's a special. It's double length, but it's brilliant. So don't miss out. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.